Kia ora koutou. I'm Brent Giblin, and you're listening to Faux Heritage Stories, a series of talks presented by historian Lisa Trutman with support from Faux Local Board and Auckland Libraries. Prepare yourself for tales of horse races, lost guns, World War I adventures, and more in this exciting series. The first talk in the series recounts some of the colourful stories connected with New Lynn horse bus driver Lawrence Turney. It begins and ends with threats of violence in the air, so put your luggage behind you and hop on board for this exciting wild ride. One summer's day in December 1881, in quiet Avondale, then known as the Wow, two days before Christmas, must have been a bit of a shock to those that were living along Great North Road. There wouldn't have been too many between what is now the roundabout and the bridge. But a bit of a shock when they saw two horse buses racing past them on Great North Road at speed. The two drivers yelling at each other, swearing at each other, trying to basically get to be the first to go to the bridge, get across the bridge, head into Newland, swing around in Newland, again come back, race towards the bridge, and then finally end up by the, pub, the, the, the hotel up in Avondale again, where one got off took off his jacket and says, right, you want to have a piece of me? Let's sort this out right now. There was a fair bit that led to that moment, though, and a fair bit after it all. Lawrence Tierney, one of the protagonists, was born in County Cavan, Ireland, one of at least seven children. He married Bridget Cunningham there on the 29th of August, 1864, and they sailed from London with four of their children. A fifth had died in infancy before the voyage on the 2nd of August, 1874, by means of a new iron clipper named the Waitangi. Tierney later claimed that he knew uh, all about being a coachman, and that was what he was brought up in from boyhood. So he knew all about horses and driving coaches and all that sort of thing. On his passenger list, he actually described himself as a groom. The interesting thing on the passenger list, though, to my mind, was the, the cost of bringing them over from England. At that time, the government, and that was the central government under Vogel, had an assisted immigration policy. Now, that didn't affect everybody. Some, of, some people were nominated by residents here, and the residents actually paid partly towards the cost of bringing people over. Uh, some people paid their own way. And if they paid their own way, they actually got offer of a grant of land. But not the Tierneys. They actually came over, they were fully assisted. They were assisted to the tune of £50 and 15 shillings, which may not sound like much, but in today's currency, that's $7,000. $7,000 to bring that family, so that just that family, over to the country. A lot of that would have been going into the food that was provided and what the shipping company was taking off the top and everything else, because the shipping companies did quite well out of the government's assisted immigration policy to try to bring settlers in, immigrants in, to work on the public works. Um, at the time when they arrived, they would have um, found a, a brief residence in the drill hall on Albert Barracks, just before the drill hall was moved off of the site. So they probably spent their first night or the first few days on what's now Albert Park. Public transport services in the Wow area uh, 
were pretty sporadic, but they started in the 1860s with a very briefly run coach line that my uh, chap called Young. Didn't last terribly long. Mainly it was going from the 1870s though. Now a horse bus, just to explain. A horse bus is an enclosed coach, but different from the um, Cop and Co coaches or stuff that you see on westerns and everything else like that. Uh, there were two seats on either side inside the actual cabin and people would face each other. So there'd better be no sort of ruckuses or people not getting on with each other because that was a pretty confined space. And if they were travelling the seven to nine mile journey from this part of Auckland through to the city, yeah, they'd better get pretty well get on and not actually have too much fuss and hopefully nobody throwing up. The first one that we know of that had a regular service was a man called Frederick Eli Phipps. Now he was lucky he had a small store he owned in the Avondale area as well. So he was running a horse bus service, he had a, pa a paddocks near his store and he pretty well ran this for a couple of years, but just for a couple of years. It, it pretty well fizzled out, fizzled out by 1871 due to his money troubles. There was a gap and then in came one of the Quick brothers. There were two. Francis, known as Frank Quick, and his brother Christopher. Now, they were partners up until 1870, and then the partnership broke up. Christopher Quick concentrated mainly on the Anihanga route and the route down to Narawahia and down to Hamilton. There was bigger money than that. So that left Frank with trying to see if he could find another route, and the main one he chose was the one going to the Wow. They would, he would leave um, um, from, um, for James Palmer's Wow Hotel in Avondale um, via Mount Albert, leaving Avondale at 8am and the Union Bank in the city at 5pm. At a very reasonable fare, he advertised, a great convenience to the inhabitants of those districts who may have daily business in town. Um, three days after the first trip, the response from the customers was so positive that Quick added another trip. So the bus left Avondale at 8am and 3pm daily. And this was a boon for people. They could actually get in to the town and get out again. Um, there is a possibility that he leased land at New Lynn from the Nathan family for stabling and for paddocks as early as 1873. Certainly by 1878, the land was in his wife's name. And that today is the site of what used to be the Cambridge Clothing Company. And now it's that Clark Street extension that empties out into Totra Ave and heading out through. That was the um, Quick Stables area. So running from the hotel in, in the Avondale, the Wow Hotel to the city, the one-way fare was a shilling in 1883. And, um, and that's how people pay. The land was eventually transferred over to Another chap called Nielsen Gordon Lennox. Stationer, real estate investor, but just basically owned the land. Interesting things happened on some of those horse buses just briefly. In 1876, a gentleman by the name of William Haggerty was in, this, in town, in court, got in trouble, doing something with a guy called Murphy, another fight. He had won his case and he thought, yahoo, and got royally drunk. So by the time the last bus got heading back towards the Wow and back towards this area and he sort of clambered on top with all the luggage was and everything else and fell asleep. He fell off somewhere in Waterview, 
Waterview Strait and Great North Road, and the bus just kept going, didn't hear him falling off. Somebody else coming past, uh, I, you know, I, I heard this, by the side of the ditch and managed to get him. He, he, he wrecked to one of his legs and everything else. They got into the hospital. But yeah, that's the kind of the wild sort of wilderness sort of style of these horse buses is straight through. And of course, going through next to nothing. It was all rural area, countryside farms. So meanwhile, back to our friend Tierney, straight out of the immigration barracks. He is said by the family to have first found work as a groom at the Dilworth estate. Now, I can't find any documentation to back that up, but it's a strong family tradition. So somebody must have been told, somebody must have been told, somebody this, you know, so I'm not discounting it. But by early 1877, he definitely had another job, and that was working with Frank Quick. He was driving one of the horse buses to and from Avondale. By May 1878, he and his family found a home somewhere here in New Lynn. Now, I'm not 100% sure where. I thought it was somewhere close to that Cambridge Clothing Company site or on the site itself. I'm not 100% sure it is. It actually even could be just down near the bridge. But it was somewhere in New Lynn. It was a four-room cottage on property owned apparently by the Wilson or the Porter families but it did have a connection again with this Nelson Gordon Lennox. According to Tierney, some years later, uh, in the time that him and his family lived in this cottage, for eight years they paid no rent. So he told this other bloke that he actually sold the right to be in the cottage to, don't worry, no rent was paid, so you're fine. No, he wasn't. Another story. If I've got time, I'll go into that. By January 1879, Tierney had his own business, his own horse bus business. He put in his ads, um, L. Tierney's timetable, Auckland and Wow. Frank Quick must have franchised probably part of his route to him in some fashion. Um, things, though, didn't go smoothly for Tierney. He was also under contract to carry mail between Auckland and Avondale, but for some reason failed to do so. And the Authorities didn't like that. Where's our mail? Where's the mail bags? You're supposed to have carried these. Uh, attempts were made to serve a summons on him to appear in court over the matter, uh, but unsuccessfully, Tierney by that stage was down in Hamilton. And it, it was one of the first times that he was away from the family. Then came the Matthew Frost incident. November 1879, on the New North Road, very close to the junction with Mount Eden Road, beside the Eden Vine Hotel, which later became W.H. Tongues, funeral directors, for those of you old enough to remember um, W.H. Tongues. There was a rather serious collision between two vehicles, so the Auckland Star reported. Occurred at half past seven o'clock yesterday evening near the Eden Vine Hotel on the New North Road. Mr. Matthew H. Frost, at the time stated, was driving in a buggy from the well, and on approaching the hotel, he passed the bus, which was going in the same direction. Immediately afterwards, the driver of the larger vehicle, a man named Lawrence Tierney, whipped his horses up and attempted to recover his lost position. Mr. Frost perceived that the bus was coming up furiously behind on the same side of the road, and comprehending the imminence of the danger, he called out loudly, Look out! Before any response could be made, the bus ran into the buggy, smashing the two off wheels of the light conveyance 
as well as the after axle, the hinder spring and offshaft. Sounds dramatic. The passengers of the bus dismounted and with their assistance, Mr. Frost managed to remove his track to a place of safety. The damage is estimated at between 15 and 20 pound. In all probability, legal proceedings will be the direct result of the collision. Oh yes, it was. Frost took turning to court. You ran me off the road, you rascal. Just about the only thing that everyone agreed upon was that when Frost demanded that Tierney pay for damages on the, on the night, Tierney responded, not dismounting from his bus, that Frost could, quote, go to the place of eternal punishment. Enough doubt was cast upon Frost's side, though. Everyone says, oh, we think Frost was drinking, and we, we think he was attempting to trot or race both Tierney's bus and, a, and another vehicle which remained unnamed. So uh, Tierney got off. There was enough doubt cast. Very lucky. In 1880, Tierney expanded his business. He took on staff. He had uh, um, a, a route going down to Onihanga as well as serving the one in Avondale. And all this was operated in opposition now to Francis Quick. He was employing men to drive the buses in his name and seemed quite successful at last. And then in October 1880, he mysteriously left the country and went to Australia. His family was still here. He'd abandoned his family temporarily. Well, people in Avondale were really incensed. They were annoyed. They held a special meeting to collect money to help support Bridget and her family. Uh, the meeting also moved that legal steps be taken to secure the person of Lawrence Tierney and compel him to support his family. Uh, the whale driver at the time, Mr Sayers, was tasked to go around the district gathering money for the family's welfare. He was probably one of Quick's men. But by March 1881, Tierney was both back in the country and facing bankruptcy. I'm not surprised. Unable to pay his creditors, he filed a statement with the Supreme Court and remained bankrupt until October that, that following the following year. Meanwhile, he still somehow continued to provide a bus service to Avondale, so he was working through his bankruptcy. And then came the Collins incident, which I started this speech off in the first place. So on that December day in 1881, there was a chap by the name of Patrick Collins. He was working for Frank Quick. A day before the fracas outside the hotel, he apparently had had an argument with Tierney and accused Tierney of basically being next to nothing and Frank Quick paid for the clothes that you're standing up in, which really, really got up Tierney's nose and he was rather upset about that. He demanded that he took back such insults and Collins refused to and they nearly had a set to in, outside, in the Newland stables just down the road. Following day, Tierney left town half an hour ahead of Collins. That was his normal schedule. Collins though managed to catch him up at the Wow Hotel down as I say by what's now the roundabout. Tierney left the hotel five minutes before Collins, but Collins again caught him up, this time in New Lynn, near Quick Stables. Tierney then stopped his bus, blocked the road, and this was Great North Road, just before the Totra Ave Junction, 
just beyond the Totara Junction. Uh, Collins called for Tenny Hoi, you clear the road. The other refused, of course. Collins then tried edging his horse bus around Tierney. This is amazing driving, edging a bus, driven by horses and everything. I was trying to get something around another vehicle driven by horses. Only to find the other man shifted his vehicle as well, blocking Collins again. And then both drivers started their mad drive at speed back towards the Wower Bridge, which was then a one-lane narrow wooden bridge. Like the old Kapu Bridge, but shorter, but one lane. Tierney reached the bridge first and then stopped dead. Just, just to stop dead. Just to do this. And half a minute later, he drove on a bit further and stopped dead at the other end. Before finally whipping his horses, racing back up the hill toward, up towards the hotel, Collins in pursuit. Tierney was eventually charged with a breach of the Public Works Act because there was no transport regulations in those days. There was no regulating of these sorts of things at that stage. The only thing they could really get them on was, was two things, basically uh, causing a disturbance and breaching the Public Works Act. And they charged him with allowing his horse bus to remain for a length of time in the centre of the road. Unfortunately, the prosecutor got his papers wrong and he cited the wrong part of the Public Works Act. Because he did that, Tenney was let off that part of the charge. The judge says, hey, you should have done section 63G or whatever you did, 32F. That's the wrong one. You can't charge him then. But he was fined 20 shillings plus costs of a pound and four shillings for causing a disturbance threatened to fight Collins in the public street outside the hotel and cause a fracas. Both Lennox and Quick were involved with the start-up of the Northern Omnibus Company in 1883, which was based in Avondale. They bought up land next, very close to the hotel. They were going to have two routes coming in between um, Avondale and Newland and the city, both by Great North Road, past the asylum, and New North Road. Um, huge, huge amount of shareholders and directors and money poured into this. It was going to be the first big company that would actually take over the routes. It didn't last too long. Everything sort of crashed down for that by 1884. But that would have been the start and probably of Tierney thinking, I think I should get out of this game. Because after that company was um, started, then it was taken over by Patterson's which lasted quite a considerable amount longer. So the days of the single sort of owner-operator, maybe with a couple of his mates, you know, on a you know, one or two horse buses toodling around, it was long gone. We next hear of Tierney in January 1885. He had some more hard times. He'd fallen from a loft and badly injured himself. And once again, found himself in trouble with abandoning and not providing for his wife and children. Uh, Bridget, though, however, declined to appear in court to proceed against her husband, and Lawrence himself was too ill to attend the hearing, so they, they made up and let it go. It looks like by June 1886, he was making his living as a cab driver and a carter, and by that stage was living in Wakefield Street in the city, had moved out from New Lynn. 
Two months later, he and Bridget made a successful application for land at Swanson at the junction of Waitakere and Kay Roads, and so began that phase of their story uh, out in the country. Bridget received a 999 or a perpetual lease from the government on the land. It left her children's control in 1906, two years after her death. The Tierneys, though, in Swanson, different from all the carry-on that happened over here and in the city, they were the pillars of the early Swanson community. Lawrence was elected to the first school committee there in 1887. He was one of those who actively campaigned in 1888 for the building of the first school. They were also supporters of the local Catholic congregation. He was a lay preacher from time to time. Uh, in 1892, their sons James Patrick and Lawrence Tenney appear to have been supporters of the formation of a proposed Swanson Cricket Club in 1892. In 1915, he died at the Waihee home of his daughter Catherine and her husband Charles Henry Kays. They married in 1895, and he lies buried in Swanson Cemetery beside his wife Bridget. So that was his story. Do you want me to go on though? Yes? Uh, we have time, so that's why I was checking, checking the watch. Because when the Tierneys left New Lynn for Wakefield Street, that ended their chapter here in New Lynn, they left behind a footnote in the form of the cottage where they lived, wherever that cottage was. It seems that Tierney sold the cottage, and yes, I'm using the quotes around the word sold, air quotes, they are warranted, to another driver named James Henry Dyer around 1885 for, quote, a splendid horse and three pound in cash. That's the way to buy property. There you go. No mucking about. Give us a horse, three pound, it's yours. James and his wife Isabella Dyer arrived in New Zealand around 1863 to 64 with some connection with the Waikato militia. In 1868, they went under the pseudonym of Mr. and Mrs. Brown for some reason at Thames and then came to live at Mechanics Bay in Auckland in the 1870s, back under their own name. Unless it's not their own name, I'm not 100% sure, but they were under the name of Dyer. In 1874, James Dyer abandoned his wife and two children and took up with another woman with whom he lived essentially as husband and wife. He later told the court, when the court was chasing him for Isabella's maintenance, well, this woman was looking after me when I had injured my leg. And he ended up taking up with her, so that's it. Um, Isabella, after the court case, did win a right to financial support, but it's doubtful she received anything. She actually ended up her days in the costly home in the 1890s which is where those people went to that did not have much of a penny to their name. James, after at least one bankruptcy, gravitated with his new family towards Avondale and New Lynn. In Avondale, he rented part of the Aitken family farm on Rosebank and ended up owing them money. Stones were thrown at him in the street by an angry passerby as he was going past in a horse and cart. And then came the night, soon after he'd taken over the Newland Cottage from the Tierneys, that men turned up, apparently at the request of the sister of the landowner to whom he, like Tierney, was paying no rent, and lifted the roof clean off the cottage. The Auckland Star called it, in their headlines, the agrarian outrage at New Lynn. One of the classic headlines of the 19th century. 
James Henry Dyer deposed in the court case in their report that he resided at New Lynn, had occupied a house there for a year or so. There are four rooms in the house, six in the house himself, wife and four children. I take it that's the other woman's children. He bought Lawrence Tierney's interest in the house, that is, Tierney had occupied the place undisturbed for eight years and had built a stable and he took possession on an agreement. About four months ago, he received a letter claiming 10 shilling a week rent from Sarah Ann Wilson as owner of the property. Witness replied to the effect that he believed the letter was a forgery. Apparently, it was also addressed to Toby Dyer, and he felt, oh, I'm not going to open this because I'm James Dyer, not Toby. And if not, Mrs. Wilson must have most extravagant notions of the value of property in the wretched locality of New Lynn. On the 4th of May, the night was dark and threatening. You can't get more writing sort of start to that. Quite literally, on the 4th of May, the night was dark and threatening, and he and his wife went to bed rather earlier than usual, was in bed by 9 o'clock, saw no person outside before retiring to roost. There was a window, very small, in the back kitchen, had been asleep for some time when he and Mrs. Dyer were suddenly aroused by strange noises at the back and front of the house. He got out of bed, saw no less than eight men armed with sticks and axes, did not see any guns. He called out, Who's that? The tallest replied, I'm Jack Porter. I've bought this place and I want immediate possession. Are you going to get out of this, Jimmy? He, Dyer, replied, this is not the proper time to come. Actually, I bet he said something else, but this is the court. This is the polite version. Porter replied, if you don't get out, I and my men will have the roof off in quick sticks. Dyer said, John, my dear boy, that would have led to, to more strife if he actually said that, John, my dear boy, such an act would, will be unlawful. He said, Damn the law! Now lads up with you, down comes the room, immediate possession is the word of command. Dyer got hold of an axe and faced Porter, warning him of the terrors of the law and asking him to show proof that he had bought the place. Yes, said Porter, here's an iron document by which I intend to take possession and he lifted up a big hammer. He, Dyer, knocked the hammer out of Porter's hand with the axe. Porter cried out, Now, man, off with the roof! Dyer leapt forward, brandished the axe, and said that he would knock the first man down who attempted to unroof his house. Immediately, one of the men caught him behind by his nightshirt and pulled him down in the wet, held him and put his hand over his mouth to prevent him calling the police. Have a lot of luck calling the police in Newland and those that, that day and age. They weren't around. Nearest police station wasn't even in Avondale at that stage. Anyway, Mrs. Dyer was very much frightened and could not find the matches. He knew all the men. They were all residents at Newland. They took the roof off while he went to pacify the children. He went out again and persuaded them to desist. It was so very wrong and so illegal. Porter shouted, Wire in, lads. I'm responsible. And on they went. Mrs. Dyer in her nightdress and shawl ran screaming away. Erwick, one of the men, ran after her and put his hand to her throat and threatened her. They stripped the house of shingles and when the mischief was done, they went out towards the public house. 
I'm presuming that's probably the Newland Hotel, which was existed at that stage. The outrage took about an hour and a half. Porter and his assistants were found guilty of malicious injury to property. They could have been sentenced to seven years in jail with hard labour each, because it was a fairly serious charge. But the judge let them off lightly, seeing, as he said, they acted with a with bona fide belief that they were in the right. Strange judgment from the judge. Porter was fined £20, and the rest were fined £5 each. As for James Henry Dyer and his second wife, they simply faded back into the shadows of history. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this talk from Faux Heritage Stories. Stay tuned to hear the next episode. If you want to hear other author talks, concerts and in-depth heritage commentaries, head to the Auckland Library's website to subscribe. Matewa.